Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. In the 11th summer of music-centric sermons, we have abandoned the iPod. We've thrown it in that drawer with all the other electronics we never use anymore. How many of you have one of those drawers? You know what I'm talking about. Just threw the iPod in there because that's gone. And we've returned to a simpler time. Uh, We've gone vinyl. Uh, we're, We're looking at songs that we can gain some theological reflection upon from the era of classic rock. We find it we call it finding God on your turntable. We've already uh, heard from Jimi Hendrix, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Neil Young. And today, who's the artist today? Today, the artist is. The artist is the first artist, the first singer-songwriter that I got into. You have to, I'm talking about 13-year-old BZ. 13-year-old BZ pretty much is like heavy stuff. My, I was, you know, 13, I'm pretty much all about Zeppelin, ZZ Top, Deep Purple, Blue Oyster Cult, Uriah Heep, bands like that. But, but there was this one singer-songwriter that caught my ear and I bought his albums and liked them. Um, I'm talking about Cat Stevens. Oh, well, see, a good response, yes. Yes, Cat Stevens. Yeah, before I got into Dylan in 1975, that's when that happened. Uh, when I was 16, I was already a Cat Stevens fan. My kind of my oh, my only non-heavy thing I I listened to. I liked it because there seemed to be some substance. I liked the poetry. I liked the lyrics, and, and he's a good musician as well. Um, Cat Stevens is the artist with three names. Uh, he was born Stephen Jeriju. Stephen Jeriju. He was the son of a Greek Orthodox guy from Cyprus and a uh, Baptist mother from Sweden. <laughs> and he went to Roman Catholic school. And somehow ended up a Muslim, but that's later in the story. Uh, so he's born Stephen Jeriju in uh, 1948 in London. And like so many uh, music artists from that era, he was inspired by the Beatles. That's what got him all excited about music. And he first took up piano and then also guitar. Um, began performing at age 18 and decided that there wasn't much of a future for a pop star with the name Stephen Jeriju. And so he changed it to Cat Stevens. I thought that was a good move on his part. And that becomes his second name. He's Cat Stevens. And... Um, He released his first album in 1967. His first hit was The First Cut is the Deepest. Remember remember that song? A lot of people know it by the Rod Stewart version. The First Cut is the Deepest. But it's actually written by Cat Stevens. That was his first hit. Um, In 1969, at the age of 21, he almost died of tuberculosis. And coming out of that near-death experience, he was changed. He took on a more serious demeanor and he began to move away from pop music into more spiritual themes. He 
He was uh, beginning to practice meditation. He was studying various religions at that time. And in the, he, he brought out eight albums in the late 60s and into uh, up till 1977. He brought out eight studio albums and sold millions. So he was very successful. Uh, in 1976, he had a second near-death experience. Uh, when he almost drowned off the coast of Malibu in California. And in, in his panic, he cried out to God and said, God, save me and I'll serve you. Um, not long after that, he converted to Islam and abandoned music for 30 years. Just walked, he had this immensely successful career and just walked away from it for 30 years. And then, and then 30 years later, he returned and brought out an album called... Um, uh, road singer, but but yet after his conversion to Islam, he changed his name to Yusuf Islam. That's his that's his third name, and uh, you know he, he's still looking pretty cool for a guy seventy years. Old. You know, some people just got the mojo, and they can become Muslims and get seventy years old and still look cool. You know, um, so he's doing music again, and it's really pretty good. In fact, that Road Singer album I think is great. I've listened to it a lot. Uh, and, and since his comeback, he's released four albums. But the, the music I'm going to work from, of course, is from the 70s. It's from his best-selling album, the 1971 album, Teaser in the Firecat. That was his now, my favorite one was Catch Bullet 4, but this was his most popular one. Uh, from 1971, uh, Teaser in the Firecat. It has on there the song Morning Has Broken, which is a song he did not write. That's just a good old Christian hymn. Uh, Moon Shadow. I'm being followed by a moon shadow. Remember that one? And then, um, but I'm using, the, I'm using the last song on the album. Anybody want to take a guess? Because you know what it is. What song am I going to use? No, no. What song am I going to use? Somebody guess. Somebody will know. There you go. Peace Train, of course. Of course. I love that song. I just absolutely adore that song. Peace Train. Um, that song really does capture the counterculture longing to get beyond war and find a, a way to have peace on earth. Uh, I call this the holy yearning of the hippies for peace. And there's nothing wrong. The hippies weren't wrong in their holy yearning for peace. They were wrong in not finding a better Messiah than the Beatles. That's, that's where they fell short. But their holy yearning for peace was indeed a, a holy thing. You can do worse than getting on the peace train. Amen. So let's hear the song, and I have a lot to say in regard to it, but let's hear the song first, Cat Stevens' Peace Train. Now I've been happy lately, thinking about the good things to come. And I believe it could be Something good has begun Oh, I've been smiling lately Dreaming about the world at one And I believe it could be Someday it's going to come Cause out on the edge of darkness There rides a peace train Oh, peace train, take this country Come take me home again I've been smiling lately Thinking about the good things to come And I believe it could be Something good has begun 
I just, I just like the sentiment. I like the desire. Come on, get on the peace train. Peace train, holy roller, you know. I mean, and by the way, by the way, Cat Stevens did write that song on a train, which makes it you know, even cooler. All right, so, you know, nobody here would think this, but I sometimes wonder, you know, what people outside of Word of Life. I can just imagine someone saying, do you know Pastor Brian? He didn't even preach the Bible anymore. He just preaches like rock albums. Um, well, just to irritate those people, I'm going to start off with a whole bunch of scripture. So just, we're going to look at a whole bunch of scripture. In fact, when I, you know, the people that put these slides together up there, they said, is that right? Are you going to use, yeah, I'm going to use all that. All right, so uh, Isaiah chapter 2. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of all, the most important place on earth. So this, this is Isaiah, 8th century B.C. And he says, there's coming a day when the most important place on earth is going to be the house of the Lord. It will be raised above the other hills and people from many nations will come and say, come. 
Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. There he will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. For the Lord's teaching will go out from Zion. His word will go out from Jerusalem. He will mediate between many nations and will settle international disputes. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore. I'm not done yet. Let's go to Isaiah 9. A little more scripture for you. The time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But there will be a time in the future when the land by the way of the sea, Galilee of the Gentiles, will be filled with glory. So Isaiah's about to drop another poem on us, but he's setting it up. He says, well, you know, I know that, I know that Galilee's held in contempt. People look contemptuously upon this backwaters called Galilee, but something's going to happen someday that's going to change all of that. And the poem goes like this. The people who walk in darkness. This is people in Galilee. This is, this is 700 years before Christ. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. For the boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will just keep on rolling. It'll never end. Yeah, I'm not done yet. We've got to have some New Testament. Uh, now from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea in the land of Zebulon and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be, it might be what? It might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen. Isaiah said they will see, but Matthew changes it. They have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has, not will, but has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent or rethink. Start thinking in a new way. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then it flows right in to the Sermon on the Mount. And I just might want to mention the seventh beatitude. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the children of God. The Hebrew prophets, you see, foretold a day when the Son of God would come as a Prince of Peace. Now this Messiah would be a peaceable king reigning over a peaceable kingdom. 
That's what the Hebrew prophets foretold. And the coming of Messiah would abolish war as a means of achieving God's will. That's what they foretold. Jesus of Nazareth claimed to be that king. The Hebrew prophet says, someday, 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 a king's going to come and he's going to be a prince of peace. And when his kingdom comes, they'll turn, they'll turn swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. I would say they're going to turn... Uh, they're going to turn tanks into tractors and missile silos into grain silos. Study war no more. And the increase of his government, his reign, his rule, and his peace, there's no end. That was the prophecies. And then Jesus of Nazareth comes along and claims to be that king. First privately to his disciples. And then publicly at his triumphal entry. And finally, under oath before the high priest Caiaphas. And Jesus told the high priest under oath, he said, From now on, not some way off in the future, from now on you will see this reign of Messiah, the Son of Man, coming to pass. With the death and resurrection... Of Jesus the Messiah. And with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the kingdom of Christ came, has come, is among us. The early Christians, I want to talk about the early Christians. By early Christians, I don't mean I don't mean you know the first year or the first ten years or the first fifty years. I mean the first three hundred years. So actually, quite a long time. For the first three centuries, that's what I mean by early Christians. I don't just mean first century, I mean first 300 years. First, second, third century, going just into the fourth. Um, the early Christians fully believed they lived in the kingdom of Christ. That's how they thought about it. They thought, oh, okay, now that I've believed and now that I'm baptized, that was the emphasis, now that I'm baptized, I belong to a different kingdom. Maybe I used to belong to the Roman Empire. Not anymore. I mean, I might, you know, I might technically still belong to the Roman Empire. If they had passports back then, they didn't. But if they did, they said, I might have a, a Roman passport, but I really belong to the kingdom of Christ. That's exactly how they thought about it. They weren't waiting for the kingdom of Christ to come. They were living it. That's important. Uh, for them... Uh, the kingdom of Christ had come. And their gospel announcement was that the world had a new Lord. Lord would be a political term. Lord was a title given to Caesar. And they said, yeah, Caesar, Lord? Nah, not so much. Jesus is Lord. And that's what got them in trouble. That's, that's, that was at the root of why they were periodically persecuted. Because they would say, well, no, 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 Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord because God raised him from the dead and exalted him to his right hand. That's how they thought about it. That's how they preached. They would say that... The empire of King Jesus has come, and the empire of King Jesus is an empire of peace. And they, they believed that they were to be the blessed peacemakers. So, 
As the early Christians preached Jesus as Lord and Jesus as King, that is Jesus as Christ, that is Jesus as Messiah, Isaiah 2 was their favorite text. That's the one I opened up. That's the one about that, that, in the, that it shall come to pass someday that uh, the house of the Lord will be the most important place. And a word will go out from Jerusalem. And people will come and say, let's learn the ways of the Lord. And they'll turn swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks, study war no more. That was their favorite text to preach on now the kingdom, that anticipated kingdom that Isaiah foresaw had come with Jesus Christ. And that they loved Isaiah too. They preached on it all the time. And for them, this scripture was fulfilled in Christ. Their task was to live it, not wait for it. Did you hear what I said? Their task was to live it, not wait for it. They're not waiting for it. They're to live it. So we're not waiting for it. It's here. We've got, we got to live it. Yeah, but not everybody's living it. Well, that's their problem. We're going to live it because we're baptized because we confess Christ. We're in his kingdom, so we're going to live in his kingdom now. And that's what they did. And Christian soldiers, and there were Christian soldiers, Christian soldiers... Soldiers who became Christians, Christians didn't become soldiers. What happened, would happen, though, is that soldiers would become Christians. They didn't have to leave the army. They just had to take a vow they wouldn't kill, even in war, that they would never kill. Because then, like now, the Roman army was vast. I mean, it, it, it went through all forms of social structure. They're building roads. They're maintaining order. They're essentially a police force and on and on it goes. And so the church said, well, you could know, you could stay in the military as long as you take a vow that you won't kill. And so Christian soldiers became non-lethal soldiers. Now, none of this is great. None of this was controversial. I mean, not among the Christians. Outside, the, yeah, it was controversial among the pagans. But this was not controversial. It sounds, that, sounds, that sounds pretty controversial. Not then. It was just, Christians just assumed they were on the peace train. That was, I mean, it wasn't something that was debated. It wasn't controversial. It was just assumed that Christians were on the peace train. Well, this all changed with Constantine, who became emperor in the year 312. And what followed after that was the doomed attempt to have a Christian empire. They did get an empire, but it, you know, it wasn't so Christian. The Christian thing all of a sudden came into question. Because of now, instead of advancing the cause through the cross, it was advanced through the sword. And that calls into question whether it can be Christian at all. And instead of... Um, Instead of bearing witness, they now waged war. Instead of being martyrs, Christians became conquerors and crusaders. You understand that the word martyr, the martyr is just a Greek word. It's not an English word. It's the Greek word for witness. Witness. So when Jesus says, you shall be my witnesses, he's saying, you shall be my martyrs. And the word meant witness, but over time it became, I will witness even to the shedding of my blood. I'll lay down my life. book of Revelation says uh, they overcame by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, their witness, and they love not their life even unto the death. And so, but that changed. That changed with the shift 
Instead of being martyrs and witnesses, Christians became conquerors and crusaders. And instead of saying that Jesus had fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies, they began to say that the kingdom, go, the kingdom of Christ wouldn't really come until Christ came back. That was a clever little move there. They said, oh yeah, we're going to hold on to Isaiah 2. And we'll hold on to Isaiah 9 because, you know, we put it on our Christmas cards and stuff. Uh, so we're going to hold on to it. But, it, but it's, it's not in effect yet. Jesus is Lord. Well, he's not really a Lord. He's Lord elect. You know, in the American system, you have that period of time where you have the election in November, but the swearing in happens in January. And so you have a guy, or, or maybe someday it'll be a woman, who knows? We don't know the future. Uh, so I lost my train of thought, my peace train of thought. I lost it. Oh, there's that, there's that period of time where, where they, they have been elected president, but they're not occupying the office of president. Too many people think that's Jesus' situation. Well, technically, technically, he's been made Lord by the Father, but, you know, he's not really in charge yet. See, that, that's the Father right there saying no. That was the holy no from heaven. My goodness, that was awesome. I'm anointed today. Whew. No, Jesus, okay, I'll just say it this way. This is my most radical theological position. Jesus is Lord now. Now. I mean, if you want to say, that, 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 that Brian Zahn, he's a radical theologian, yes. And you can quote me as, here's his radical theology. Jesus is Lord now. And say, I'm not going to play that, I'm not going to play that kick the can down the road eschatological game. Oh, yeah, yeah, someday, someday Jesus will really be Lord and we'll live under his peaceable reign and rule, but not now. Kick the can down. Or not now, not now, someday, not now. Ah, I gave up kicking the can down the road. I confess that Jesus is Lord now. All right, so let me, let me tell a story. Ten years ago, Perry and I were in Istanbul with our dear friends Dmitry and Anya Polyakov from St. Petersburg, Russia. And the four of us were there having a grand time together in Istanbul. And we visited the Top Copy Palace. I got a picture of Top Copy Palace. Remember that, Perry? And this was, this was, this was the center of the Ottoman Empire. The palace, it was, it was the palace and the harem and, you know, the sultan and all of that. And the, the Ottoman Empire ruled over the Middle East for something like 600 years. And this was the very center of this empire that ruled the Middle East for 600 years. And we visited that. And then as part of the top copy palace, there's a museum and the most popular exhibit in the museum are the artifacts of the Prophet Muhammad. And what I found most remarkable was they had on display the 1,400-year-old sword of Muhammad. And I took a picture of it. It's not a very good picture, but there, there it was behind glass and under, you know, some lighting, there's the, there's the sword, and there's a couple of them. There's a bejeweled one, and then there's the other, you know. And you're, you're, standing, you're pretty close. You can get pretty close, and you're just looking through the glass. And I thought, wow, the sword of Muhammad. As I left the Top Copy Palace and that museum, 
I thought how significant it is that no museum will ever have a weapon of Jesus on display. Here's the sword of Jesus. Here's, here's the gun of Jesus. Here's the nukes of Jesus. Jesus brings freedom to the world in a different way than all the others. Different than Pharaoh. Different than Alexander the Great. Different than Caesar. Different than Muhammad. Different than Napoleon. Different than Patton. I could just go on and on and on. Jesus sets us free not by killing enemies, but by being killed and forgiving. And he calls us to take up our cross and follow him. Um, Muhammad could fight a war in the name of freedom to, to liberate his followers from Meccan oppression, if you know their history. But Jesus had a radically different idea. But I don't want anybody to misunderstand me. My, my point in, make, in, in bringing this up, the whole bit about Muhammad's sword, is not an act of Christian triumphalism. That's not what I'm about in this sermon. In fact, really... What I'm going to say is going to be a lot harder for you to swallow than that because lest this sound like some sort of crass religious triumphalism, my real question is, do we Christians secretly wish that Jesus was more like Muhammad? It's not an idle question. It's not an idle question because the moment that the church took to the Crusades in order to fight Muslims, it had already surrendered its vision of Jesus to the model of Muhammad. Yeah? So Muhammad may have thought freedom could be found at the end of a sword, but Jesus never did. So the question is, are Christians who most enthusiastically support wars against Muslim nations actually trying to turn Jesus into some version of Muhammad? It's an honest question, though a bit pointed, I will agree. So walking out of the Top Copy Palace, it's only a five-minute walk. That's a five-minute walk from there to Hagia Sophia. I've got a picture. There, there we are. Evidence we were there. Uh, Perry and I and, and uh, Dmitry Polikov, Anya's taking the picture. That's, that's Hagia Sophia, Holy Wisdom. Uh, the church was built in, is first constructed in 537. So it's old. And for a pro- something like a thousand years, not quite a thousand years, more like 900 years, it was, it was the most Important church in Christianity, Hagia Sophia. They're in what was then Constantinople, the center of Eastern Christianity. And we walked over there, and, and remember, we, we, spent, we spent hours in there. We went into it, and I, I just found it endlessly moving and fascinating. I just didn't want to leave. I kept thinking, okay, we'll leave now. And we, we stayed hours there. And, you know, Dimitri and Anya felt the same way. And I took a picture there of the very famous... This is another picture. This is the, the, the Christ Pantocrator mosaic. You've probably seen... Uh, my next book's coming out in November, Unvarnished Jesus, and that, that's going to be on the cover. But, but that's, that's, I took that picture of, of a mosaic. Christ, leave that picture up. Christ Pantocrator. Pantocrator means all ruler or ruler of all. Let's say it that way. Christ ruler of all. Do we believe that Christ is ruler of all? But we secretly mean he's going to be someday, right? Oh, I was giving God a chance. Another, I was hoping God would thunder again. But anyway, <laughs> you, can't, you can't make God do stuff. Uh, no, Jesus is 
Pantocrator, ruler of all right now. And there he is, there he is, the ruler of all with no sword in his hand. No sword. He's got a Bible, but it's closed and locked. Jesus doesn't need to read the Bible. He is the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God. He has no sword. Although the book of Revelation says he has a sword, but it's not in his hand. Where is it? It's in his mouth. In other words, Jesus reigns and rules and overcomes by the word that comes from his mouth. Does he slay with that sword from his mouth? He slew me and then raised me to life again. Come on, how many of you have ever been cut down by the word of Christ, but then raised up and healed? Some of that may be happening today. <laughs> Maybe the word of Christ is striking you down, but I promise you, it will also heal you and raise you up. Jesus blesses the peacemakers, not the warmongers. The followers of Christ are called to wage peace. Christians are called to live out the kingdom of Christ here and now. I have one last story before we come to the table of the Lord. Um, The Crusades are one of the great failures of the church. Um, The Fifth Crusade is what I want to talk about. That began in 1219. The Fifth Crusade was a war launched against the Sultan of Egypt. And it was called for by Pope Innocent III. He wasn't that innocent, actually. Uh, But Pope guilty, you know, didn't sound good. So, (laughs) Pope Innocent III called for the Fifth Crusade, a war against Muslims in Egypt. And St. Francis of Assisi joined that crusade. St. Francis of Assisi joined the Fifth Crusade. But not as a soldier. Because he believed what Jesus said. Blessed are the peacemakers. He went as a peacemaker. All the way there. There's a book. There's a a wonderful book. I think we have a copy or two in our bookstore. The Saint and the Sultan. It's a relatively new book. I thoroughly enjoyed that book. It tells this story of St. Francis joining the Fifth Crusade. and, And one other monk from his order. One other Franciscan. And they traveled with the armies, most of which were from France, some from Germany, some from Portugal. And they're traveling with this army. And all the way to Egypt, St. Francis is saying, you guys, this is not the way to go. And he's preaching peace to them. Finally, they get to Egypt and they're forming the battle lines, beginning to lay siege to the sultan there. And... uh, Francis has been unable to dissuade King Andrew II from continuing with this war against the Sultan of Egypt. And so what Francis decides to do, he says, well, if, 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 the, the, if the Christian king won't listen to me, maybe I can go talk to the Muslim Sultan. Maybe I can win him to Jesus. And he told, he told King Andrew, he says, I'm going, to, I'm going to talk to the Sultan. They said, well, you'll never make it. Well, I'm going to go over there. But they'll kill you before you even get there. He said, well, they'll kill me. I don't care. And so Francis and his one brother, they crossed the lines, crossed enemy lines, approached the camp of the sultan, and they were immediately arrested. But eventually he was brought to the sultan. And they had, I think it was a couple of weeks together, deep conversation. Francis talking to the sultan about Jesus. Francis never did convert uh, the Sultan of Egypt 
to Christ, but he did convert him to friendship. Yeah, converted to friendship. And, and they, be, they became actually very good friends. And the sultan gave Francis a gift. He gave him a horn, you know, like to blow and summon. And uh, Francis would never, you know, if he gave Francis anything, he would never keep it. He'd immediately give it away. This is part of his personal ethic, his commitment to, you know, voluntary poverty. But he kept this one. He kept this one. And, and uh, so Francis then returns to the crusaders and he tells them one last time, he says, you guys, this is a bad idea. In fact, this is not going to turn out well for you. You're not going to win this war. You're going to go into war and you're going to lose it. And they didn't listen to him, so Francis went back to Italy, back to Assisi. And just as Francis had predicted, the, the crusade ended in a complete catastrophe. And thousands and thousands of crusaders lost their lives. But uh, Francis went back and he kept that horn. And when he got back to Assisi, he would use it, he would blow that horn when he wanted to gather his brothers together for prayer. And he began to teach them that they should befriend Muslims. Not regard Muslims as enemies, but be their friend. Now that may be radical today, it is. Imagine how radical that was in the Middle Ages. For a Christian to say, our first task is to be friends with Muslims. Then we can talk to them about Jesus, but if we're not friends, then what's the point? And he modeled that for us. So... In the name of Jesus, I ride the peace train. As a Christian, I know I'm called to the family business of making peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called what? Not, you know, silly doves or whatever you want to call them. No, they shall be called the sons and daughters of God. They'll be called... Members of God's own household. So I reject as false and dangerous any notion that there must be a mega war in the Middle East before Christ can appear. The Bible teaches nothing like that. And those that think it does are gravely mistaken. It's a dangerous teaching and it's a false teaching. Like Peter, like Paul, like the early Christians... Like St. Francis of Assisi, we are called to heed the call of the Prince of Peace and join him on the peace train. Amen and amen. Stand up with me. We're going to come to the table of the Lord, partake of the body and blood of Christ. But before we do that, let's pray together the prayer of St. Francis. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.